content warning. The following episode includes brief discussion of physical violence and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. For five years, I taught as an adjunct or part-time college instructor in political science while finishing up my doctoral program in grad school. The courses I taught ranged from intro to American government to courses for majors that focused on identities, particularly race, gender, and religion, and how those identities play a part in political participation here in the U.S. The students I taught varied a great deal in terms of age, gender, sex, race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, and ideology. And because of that, and also because as an instructor, my job was not to indoctrinate people with my own personal views, I taught my students the truth based on a historical and contemporary record, based on documentation, based on statistics and other empirical evidence. And the idea was that I wanted them to learn the facts, but also teach them how to think critically, how to critically take in and evaluate information for themselves. Because of that, my courses included group discussions and a research paper. The assignment for the paper depended on the course, but generally I would ask them to address specific questions and I'd always allowed opinion, which was never graded, this was to get them engaged in what they were writing about. What they were graded on was how well they addressed the questions I provided and how well researched their paper actually was. I made it a point not to interject my lectures with my personal opinions on issues. I wanted the classroom to feel like a free speech zone as much as possible, and I wanted to make sure students never felt like I evaluated their coursework or gave them a final grade based on ideological bias. And of all the feedback I received in anonymous student evaluations, none made the claim that I taught them in a slanted manner or showed any bias against them in grading. I even had feedback, and this was when I taught for a year at a college that drew mostly rural conservative students, that gave a great deal of praise for how unbiased I was in teaching important concepts and how I was able to challenge my students with various perspectives in a non-judgmental and patient way with students who were largely resistant to perspectives outside their own. Comments like that I appreciated the most. But while I sought to teach in an ideologically unbiased manner, the one place where I was not particularly neutral was voting. And I don't mean in the sense of telling students to vote Democrat or Republican or third party. I mean that depending on the scope of the course, I would walk through what it took for various groups in American society, women and black Americans especially, to gain the right to vote. I would discuss what it meant to be in our version of a democratic republic and what makes the right to vote important and why we should exercise that right if eligible and I explored the details, eligibility, how to sign up, making sure you had what you needed, and so forth. The bottom line was that I didn't care who you were going to vote for, but make sure you vote. Now at the time, 
This was during the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. The idea that people should be able to vote wasn't considered a controversial stance, at least among most Americans regardless of partisanship. As a politician, you go out and let voters know why they should vote for you. And if you made a compelling enough case compared to your opponent, you win. If not, you lose. But these days, instead of winning over voters, you choose your own electorate by drawing the lines accordingly or by gatekeeping to where only the voters you want to vote can vote. It's an end run around accountability. And while it seems brand new to some, this resistance to democracy has been an undercurrent running through our political system since the dawn of the American Republic. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. everyone, and welcome to Potstar Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. I recently asked listeners in the Potstar Podcast discussion group on Facebook what you wanted me to discuss on the podcast next. And by the way, if you're not part of that group, search for the Potstar Podcast discussion group on Facebook and click to join. I listed a few potential topics and open up the poll to any additional topics. And these are all topics I will discuss this year. But the poll ended up with a tie between voter suppression and satanic panic. I initially was going to do a runoff of the two topics, but given all the discussion right now about the new wave of voter suppression bills being enacted by states such as Georgia and Texas in response to the impact of Black voters on the 2020 election, and the difficulties the Democrats are having in passing a federal bill protecting voting rights. Joe Manchin, I'm looking at you. Because of that, I decided to tackle this subject first. Because of the nature of this topic, it will be a multi-episode series. I'll still release an episode on Satanic Panic. That episode will come soon, either as a break during this series or right afterwards. So let's jump right into voting. The 2020 presidential election pit the incumbent, Republican Donald Trump, against Democrat Joe Biden, who was vice president under Barack Obama from 2009 to 2017. The turnout went up by quite a bit compared to the previous election, and both candidates received a record-breaking number of popular votes. But when it came down to it, Joe Biden won the election. 306 electoral votes to Trump's 232. And Biden got 7 million more popular votes than Trump. The outcome, and especially the role Black Americans played in swing state wins for Joe Biden, was celebrated by Democrats. But there were many Republicans who had a tough time believing that Donald Trump lost. Trump and his allies stoked the flames claiming the election was fraudulent and there was, quote, illegal voting, end quote, in swing states such as Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Around 60 lawsuits were filed by representatives of either the Trump campaign or the GOP between the election on November 3rd 
and the inauguration of Joe Biden on January 20th. The only one they won was about a minor oversight issue in Pennsylvania, but this did not affect the outcome of the election. The rest of the suits were lost. But those in denial of the election results didn't stop there. The January 6th insurrection, which led to the deaths of five people during and in the immediate aftermath of the riot, happened because Congress was set to certify the electoral votes. Since Donald Trump encouraged the storming of the Capitol, his supporters thought they could keep the certification from happening and keep Trump in office. The insurrection was horrifying, but the outcome wasn't what they wanted, and Joe Biden would be inaugurated president two weeks later. While Biden is now president, Republicans in local and state government across the country are doing their best to lock in their advantage and keep the wrong people from voting so 2020 doesn't happen again. There have been over 200 laws introduced in 41 out of 50 states seeking to put up roadblocks, making it more difficult for citizens to vote and easier for individuals and government bodies to overturn the will of the voters in their states. 24 of these laws and counting have been passed in 14 states this year, as of this recording. It's small d anti-democratic for sure, but it's not as if that matters to Republican officials right now. As David Frum, former speechwriter for George W. Bush, once said, quote, if conservatives become convinced that they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will reject democracy, end quote. There has always been an anti-democratic, authoritarian strain woven in the fabric of the United States. This idea that some Americans should have a voice and others should not, and this has existed from the time this country was founded. There is this conception that America's founders decided to split the 13 North American colonies from the British Empire because they wanted to govern their own affairs. They didn't want to be governed by a monarch whose legitimacy came from the so-called divine right of kings. They didn't want to continue being taxed without representation. And all that is true, but did they want full democracy, where all people who have made it to the age of majority had the right to vote, had the right to have a say in what their government did? Oh, no. And to be fair, historical models for democracy, such as the Roman Republic and Athens before it, were not open to everyone. Citizenship and therefore voting rights were only open to small subsets of those populations. And the founders were skeptical of direct democracy, direct vote by the people on government actions, believing that direct democracy would lead to mob rule. They preferred an intermediary. They preferred that voters select representatives, and then those representatives would vote in their stead. This is what is meant by the statement that the United States is a republic. It is a representative democracy. The Revolutionary War, which was the war that separated the United States from Great Britain, was waged from 1775 through 1783. During that time, in 1781, the Articles of Confederation, 
the first governing document of the U.S. was drafted and enacted. This created a confederation, a system of government where the states were largely independent of each other and cooperated with each other on a very limited basis. The Articles were in place until the U.S. Constitution was drafted by the Founders in 1787 and enacted in 1789, a few years after the end of the war. See, many of the Founders felt the need to revisit the system of governance and wanted to strengthen national government in relation to states. A confederation meant fewer resources for the new country's defense, among other things. And so the question was, should the U.S. have a unitary system where all power rests in the national government or a federal system where the states retain some autonomy but with a stronger national government than in a confederation? To make a very long story short, the federal system won the day and the U.S. Constitution, which installed the federalist system we still have today, was drafted and later ratified. But here's what I want to highlight here from this time. Both the Articles of Confederation and the U.S. Constitution codified small-r Republican government, meaning that voters would choose their representatives. Neither document enshrined an affirmative right to vote, leaving voter eligibility up to the states. In this early period, states generally limited voting rights to white male landowning citizens. The idea behind the land ownership requirement being that property owners had a material stake in the direction of the country. I think that this is something that can be argued either way, but this was the prevailing viewpoint among elites at the time. These limits on voting meant that only a small subset of the population could actually vote. There's also this belief that in the Constitution, enslaved black people were classified as three-fifths of a person. That's sort of the case, but not really. Slavery has taken a number of forms in many countries and in various time periods, but slavery in the United States is referred to as chattel slavery. Slaves in the chattel slavery system were legally considered no different than livestock. They could be bought and sold. Children split from parents, husbands separated from wives, no thought given to family bonds, no concern given to bodily integrity or consent. Work, 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 and work to death. Black people in general weren't citizens and had no rights a white man was bound to respect. And for the sake of the vote, they were not considered human at all. The three-fifths compromise had nothing to do with black people or even slaves specifically being three-fifths of a person. Black people, particularly slaves, were not considered people in the eyes of the law. But southern states wanted it both ways. Of course, they didn't want slaves to vote, but because large portions of southern state populations consisted of enslaved people, they wanted to count them as part of their population for the purposes of representation. Essentially, they wanted votes in their states to count for more than votes in free states. Of course, northern states thought this was ridiculous. Why count those who aren't even considered people and can't vote? You know, it sort of speaks to this paradox. On one hand, legally, slaves were not considered people. 
these slaveholders had more respect for the lineage of horses than they did their slaves. But unlike the horses and the cows and the chickens and the other farm animals, slavers and others who benefited from the practice spent a lot of time worried that one day the slaves would rise up, free themselves, and seek vengeance upon them. And they spent a lot of time and resources and effort to keep that from happening. I truly believe that deep down, slaveholders and those who supported the institution of slavery knew that enslaved persons were human. But there was a whole framework of white supremacy and black inferiority created to justify the enslavement of human beings. The bondage, the abuse, the sexual assault, and even murder of human beings. Much like at other times throughout history, people will go to great lengths to construct alternate realities that allow them to justify evil. So the Three-Fifths Compromise was brokered among the founders to encourage the South to agree to the U.S. Constitution. But at the end of the day, the only people who could vote were, in general, white men who owned property. In the decades to come, in the years prior to the Civil War, slaves would begin to do away with the landowning requirement, which meant that all white male citizens could vote. But that was about the extent of the expansion of the franchise. At this point, women of any race couldn't vote. Non-whites, for the most part, weren't even eligible for citizenship, so therefore couldn't vote. Black Americans, whether slave or free, couldn't vote. Native Americans couldn't vote. Asian immigrants weren't eligible for citizenship, so couldn't vote. Mexicans who already lived on land along the southern border the U.S. seized during the Mexican-American War were granted U.S. citizenship in 1848, but were systematically denied the ability to exercise their right to vote due to English language restrictions and voter intimidation. Think of this as a trial run for what was to come. The thing is, a lot of times, laws, legislation, executive orders, statutes, even constitutional amendments are drafted without racial language. But the lack of that type of language doesn't mean any racism has been resolved. As we see with Mexican-Americans, and later with other groups, is that the institutional and on-the-ground realities, as well as the execution of so-called colorblind laws, can often perpetuate and entrench racism in institutions and governance. So, let's discuss the Civil War. From 1861 through 1865, a war raged between the United States and several southern states that seceded from the Union, which formed their own confederation, the Confederate States of America. The Union, or what we often call the North, was not fighting over slavery. While there were slavery abolitionists on the side of the Union, the actual folks in power were more concerned with preserving the Union, keeping the country intact, than the institution of slavery. Abraham Lincoln, the President of the United States during the Civil War, wrote a letter to Horace Greeley, the editor of a popular newspaper at the time, the New York Tribune, in response to an article Greeley wrote criticizing his administration. In this 1862 letter, 
Lincoln said in regards to the war, quote, My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. End quote. While Lincoln would later go on to issue the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, which was intended to free slaves only in the slave states that seceded from the Union, the purpose of this was strategic, to destabilize the Confederacy. This was never meant to be a statement of overall abolition, as the slave states that remained in the Union, Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, and Maryland, were not made to relinquish their enslaved at that time. In addition, it had very little real-life effect on slavery as an institution in the South, as the states it affected had of course seceded and therefore weren't abiding by the laws of the country they were in open rebellion against. Now, while the main objective of the North was to preserve the Union, the Southern states that chose to secede certainly did so because of slavery. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate because they literally said so themselves. Of the Confederate states that issued Articles of Secession, all mentioned slavery. Let me give you a couple of examples. Mississippi, quote, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions and by an imperious law of nature. None but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has been long aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left us but submission to the mandates of abolition or dissolution of the Union, whose principles had been subverted to work out our ruin." End quote. Texas, quote, We hold as undeniable truths that the governments of the various states and of the Confederacy itself were established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their posterity that the African race had no agency in their establishment, that they were rightfully held and regarded as an inferior and dependent race, and in that condition only could their existence in this country be rendered beneficial or tolerable, that in this free government all white men are and of right ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights, that the servitude of the African race as existing in the states is mutually beneficial for both bond and free, and is abundantly authorized and justified by the experience of mankind and the revealed will 
of the Almighty Creator as recognized by all Christian nations, while the destruction of the existing relations between the two races, as advocated by our sectional enemies, would bring inevitable calamities upon both and desolation upon the 15 slaveholding states. End quote. The disparate motives between the North and South for the war played a part in what would happen after the war. At that time, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, also known as the Civil War Amendments or the Reconstruction Amendments, were proposed and ratified. The 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, banned slavery and other forms of involuntary servitude, with the exception of punishment for a crime. While most people look at the 13th in terms of it noting the end of slavery, the exception is a bit less well-known, but it has been thoroughly abused by the legal system ever since, as convicted felons have had their rights severely limited, including disenfranchisement or loss of their right to vote in most states. And inmates have been used as cheap labor. And it's due in large part to this exception in the 13th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, did quite a few things. One, it solidified jus soli, or citizenship by birthright. Anyone born or naturalized in the United States is a citizen of the United States and of the state they reside. Two, it confirmed the right to due process, life, liberty, and property, and bound those to the states. Three, it unwound the Three-Fifths Compromise, counting all residents as whole persons for the purpose of representation in Congress, particularly the House of Representatives. And four, it tied up a few loose ends as it pertained to the Civil War. Under the 14th Amendment, no one who participated in rebellion or insurrection against the United States would be allowed to hold civil or military office. Also, none of the debt incurred by the Confederacy would be assumed by the U.S. Ratified in 1870, the 15th Amendment specifically focused on the right to vote. This is the amendment, quote, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. End quote. These amendments, taken together, were intended to, at least on paper, allow former enslaved people and their descendants the same rights and liberties as white Americans, including allowing black men the right to vote. Remember that at this time, women of any color were not universally allowed the right to vote in the U.S. But there's the law as written, and then there's the cold, harsh reality. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were called the Reconstruction Amendments because these laid the foundation for a period in American history called Reconstruction. This was a 12-year period following the Civil War, between 1865 and 1877, where the U.S. military occupied the post-war South. They were there because the South lost. The occupation aimed to rebuild in the southern states that had seceded and formed the Confederacy. 
the South had incurred heavy losses to property, infrastructure, and human life. Not that the North didn't, but again, the South lost. Slavery was also over, and this meant that Southern society post-slavery was going to look a little bit different. That said, there are a couple of misconceptions regarding the end of slavery. There's this mental image we sometimes get where Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrenders at Appomattox on April 9, 1865. The war is over. The slaves are freed shortly after, all at once. Or they were freed with the Emancipation Proclamation two years earlier. Slaves go, woo! And everyone lives happily ever after. And this has been in the news recently with the recognition of Juneteenth as a national holiday. Juneteenth symbolizes the end of slavery in the United States. The date coming from a declaration made on June 19, 1865, declaring the end of slavery in Texas. But that's not what happened. Slavery was an entrenched institution, especially in the South. Slaves were considered livestock, But the thing to understand is that livestock do have value as property. These slaves were bought or bred or even inherited. In some cases, the enslaved were partially related to the families of their slaveholders or overseers, often due to rape of enslaved women in unequal, coercive relationships between slavers and slaves. So for those reasons, Many slavers weren't going to free their enslaved humans that easily. Also, many slavers went to great lengths to keep slaves uneducated and uninformed. Most slaves were not taught how to read, and learning how to read was often discouraged or even outright forbidden. Knowledge is power, and slavers worked hard to keep the enslaved from it. There was always that fear in the back of their minds that at any point, the enslaved would rise up against those who were holding them captive. So even if, say, there was an announcement in the local newspaper of the end of slavery, how were slaves going to hear about it? And even if they did hear about it, if their slaveholder was unwilling to let them go, what power did they have? So even though slavery ended... For many slaves, it didn't end all that easily. Many slavers were slow to release their slaves, waiting months or even years to release them. In addition, slaves owned in Native American territories weren't officially freed until 1866. And with the implementation of the Black Codes in the former slaveholding states, many Black Americans were simply transferred from one form of slavery to another. Several of these black codes, or laws that were implemented to restrict the freedom of black people, made unemployment a crime, self-employment a crime, carrying a firearm a crime, drinking a crime, gathering groups past sundown, (coughs) gang activity, (coughs) a crime. This meant that they were funneled into the legal system where they would be essentially enslaved per the 13th Amendment. They were put on chain gangs, or they were otherwise providing free labor to the South. And even the free weren't immune to being treated as slaves. Many black people were forced into tenant farming contracts with white landowners. And these were often their former owners, 
to where they were back to working the land of their slavers in arrangements that can be compared to serfdom. Nevertheless, despite the lack of relative freedom experienced by many newly freed slaves, Reconstruction did offer some opportunities for freedmen. Opportunities gained through the fervent activism of Black Americans, as well as the neutering of President Andrew Johnson by Congress. Johnson, Lincoln's vice president who assumed the presidency after his assassination, was a Confederate sympathizer who sought to reinstall white Confederate officials and keep former slaves from obtaining equal rights. The Reconstruction Amendments and other legislation that were designed to help freedmen were enacted over Johnson's objections. During the post-war period prior to 1877, black men were able to vote and some even ran for office. 16 black Americans served in Congress, including two U.S. Senators. More than 600 were elected to state legislatures and hundreds of other black men held office across the South during Reconstruction. But the desire of the white Southern establishment to reassert power was stronger, much stronger, than the will of the North to hold the South accountable or continue protecting the rights of black Americans living there, including the right to vote. In addition, some white Northerners blamed black Americans for difficulties encountered during Reconstruction. Just because the North had abolished slavery long before the South, didn't mean that white Northerners weren't racist. 1877 marked the withdrawal of federal troops from former Confederate states. Black Southerners were thrown to the wolves and their political gains were stripped away from them. For almost a hundred more years, black people in the South were on their own during what we would call the Jim Crow era. As I mentioned earlier, there's the law and then there's reality. The Reconstruction Amendments, particularly the 14th and 15th Amendments, read as colorblind. Yet people of Asian descent at this time weren't allowed to become citizens and therefore couldn't vote. Native Americans at this point were not considered U.S. citizens and therefore couldn't vote, even though they were here before everyone else. Much like Mexican Americans prior to the Civil War, Black Americans after the end of Reconstruction would be kept from voting through restrictive regulations and intimidation. Before discussing those, let's take a step back to discuss the political landscape in the South during the Jim Crow era. Partisanship in the U.S. for much of its existence, but particularly during this period, was not paired with ideology in the same way it is now. The major parties at this point being the Democratic and Republican parties were identified more with specific groups and geographic regions, many of whom had different and conflicting ideological beliefs. In many northern states, Democrats were primarily associated with labor interests, Roman Catholics, and immigrants, especially those who came over during large-scale Irish and Italian immigration in the 1800s and early 1900s. Republicans in the North were associated mainly with business and financial interests, as well as your WASPs, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, whose families had lived in the U.S. for generations at that point and often held on to conservative and nativist values. In the South, well, the South was called the Solid South for a reason. But unlike today, 
it was the solid South because it was solidly Democrat. This was because Confederate leaders and sympathizers had been Democrats. And Abraham Lincoln, as well as the majority of Congress during Reconstruction, had been Republicans. Many white Southerners, who were quite conservative ideologically, viewed the Republican Party as the enemy. They associated the Republicans with Reconstruction and felt that the 12-year-long occupation was an imposition and unjust punishment after the war. They're pretty entitled. They also associated the Republican Party at the time with Black American political power. And of course, they didn't want to see Black people in power at all. Black Americans, whether in the South or in the North, were more likely at the time to vote for Republicans because the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln and, rightly or wrongly, associated with the end of slavery. Also, while the Democrats in the North were generally pro-labor, many of the early labor unions, such as the American Railway Union and the American Federation of Labor, excluded black workers. Black workers were sometimes used as strikebreakers or scabs. While black workers were definitely not the only scabs used by industrialists, they were often scapegoated as being the adversary of white wage earners. Black and white laborers were often pitted against each other by labor and big business interests alike. So in the North, during much of this period, black Americans weren't really represented by the pro-labor stance of the Democratic Party. White elites in the South were extremely worried that Black Americans, including newly freed persons, would hold a great deal of political power should they have the right to vote, as well as other civic rights, such as the ability to run for public office and serve on juries. And that Black people holding political power would mean that whites would be out of power. This was a fear of their own making, to be sure, a fear born in their own racism and I think they knew they sort of asked for the situation by enslaving millions of people for generations. But this fear also reflected reality. I say this not because, oh my God, black people are so scary, but because at this time, the demographics of the South would have led black people to have real power. In 1880, black Americans made up over 40% of the population in Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and Virginia, and were the majority in Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. You can only imagine what kind of world Black people during that time would have been able to create for themselves in the South if they had been able to fully exercise their newfound freedoms. But as it was, in the South primarily, several tactics were used by white elites to keep Black people from voting. The idea was to find ways to work around the right of Black people to vote, now enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, to restrict their rights. They couldn't simply pass a law that said, Black people are not allowed to vote. But there were ways officials could get there. The closest white elites got to explicitly excluding Black voters was the white primary. While the Constitution said that the right to vote couldn't be restricted on the basis of race or color. This didn't extend to rules created by the parties, which they contended were private organizations and outside the purview of government. So in eight states, 
Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Texas. The state Democratic Party ran primary elections that were restricted to white voters only. While black voters could participate in general elections, at least on paper, as we'll get into in a moment, at that point, the contest was effectively over. Because these states were one-party dominated states, the election actually took place during the Democratic primary. So in practice, black people did not have a real say in who was elected to office. But other regulations would be enacted that weren't quite as on the nose as the white primary. This cupped up the illusion that these laws were enacted to maintain the integrity and quality of the vote, but in practice were designed to keep black Americans from the franchise. Some states, including Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia, enacted literacy tests and voter questionnaires. These were exams either of actual literacy or of political facts that states required voters to pass in order to register to vote or to cast a ballot. On paper, the idea was that these tests would increase the quality of the voter pool and keep out people who were uneducated and therefore, at least this is how the argument goes, easily manipulated. But in reality, literacy tests and questionnaires were quite discriminatory. I mentioned earlier that during slavery, enslaved people were often kept from learning how to read and write. Also, after the Civil War and especially post-Reconstruction, schools were segregated, they were separated by race and had unequal resources. And a lot of black children, due to the realities of segregation and the economic struggle many black families faced due to racial disparities, didn't finish school. As far as I know, my grandparents on my mom and dad's side of the family, who were born in the early 1900s in the South, didn't finish high school. I know for sure my grandmother on my dad's side was married at 13. My grandmother on my mom's side dropped out of school in eighth grade. So these tests, even if administered equally, would disproportionately affect black voters. In Alabama, Louisiana, and South Carolina, a certain level of property ownership would allow voters to bypass literacy requirements. This exception was also colorblind on its face, but was disproportionately beneficial for white voters. But even with this disadvantage, white officials also felt the need to put their finger on the scale. These tests were given to some groups, particularly black voters and other voters of color, more often than others. The tests often did not test what they purported to test, and there wasn't a uniform standard in which tests were used and how they would be graded. So it was often up to a random elections official, who was generally hell-bent on failing black voters, regardless of how well they actually performed. Literacy tests and questionnaires kept not only illiterate black people from voting, but also black people who could read, and even the well-educated. The tests kept some poor white people from voting as well. The other interesting thing is about literacy tests is that this was a method of disenfranchisement also used outside the South. For example, in Connecticut during the same period, literacy tests were used to keep black Americans, Puerto Ricans, 
poor people and other groups from voting. And in Massachusetts, literacy tests were used to exclude immigrants who were naturalized citizens as well as their descendants. So while we are mainly discussing the ways in which the vote was restricted in the South, keep in mind that states outside the South were engaging in some of these measures too. Another method of keeping black people from voting was the poll tax. The poll tax was a flat fee required to be paid in order to vote. This was mandatory in Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. And the poll tax was typically required to be paid by a certain advanced state and paid for multiple years in order to vote. Due to major economic disparities between the races, this tended to keep many black voters, along with poor white voters, out of the elections process. But there were some states that wanted to make sure that poor white voters weren't excluded. Can't have black people and poor white people banding together. Grandfather clauses were enacted in states such as Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Virginia. While the 15th Amendment couldn't keep black people from voting if they had been enslaved, the Grandfather Clause was a workaround. These took various forms, but essentially, if you or any of your direct ancestors prior to the Civil War voted, you would be eligible to vote. This would also allow those who were grandfathered in to bypass any other voting requirements that I just discussed. Again. On paper, this is another race-neutral regulation. Well, prior to the Civil War, most black people in the South were enslaved. And no, slaves couldn't vote. Also, we didn't talk a lot about free black people prior to the Civil War, but their rights were heavily restricted as well, and this included voting rights. And much like it was the case with literacy tests, grandfather clauses were used outside the South. There was at least one that predated the Civil War. In 1857, Massachusetts enacted a grandfather clause aimed at exempting native white people from literacy tests intended to keep Irish immigrants and their descendants from voting. So these, as well as other restrictions, were put in place to keep black Americans, as well as other groups of color and groups that at least didn't want involved in the political process, from voting. And on top of these restrictions, a campaign of intimidation and violence was waged by government officials and by white supremacist groups like the Ku Klux Klan, white citizens councils, the White League, and other white militias to keep those they considered undesirables from the ballot box. This violence included beatings, lynchings, and assassinations. The lockdown of the ballot box post-Reconstruction had the effect of reducing black voting in the South during Jim Crow to single digits. It also allowed one-party rule in the South to flourish without any significant resistance. Because the number of seats in Congress were apportioned based on the entire population, rather than only those who were eligible to vote, these tactics led to Southern white elites stealing House seats, not to mention opportunities for Senate seats from Black Southerners. White Southerner representation in Congress was outsized 
compared to their relative share of the overall population, which meant that they would enjoy a hefty share of political power for decades to come. In the next installment of the Pasteur Podcast Voter Suppression Series, the focus will be on the history of U.S. voting rights as it relates to sex. This anti-democratic strain woven through the foundation of American governance is not limited to race, though when we look at sex, intersectionality does play a significant role in woman suffrage, the right of women to vote. I'll talk a bit about why women were kept from voting, the woman suffrage movement, and if the 19th Amendment, which was aimed at granting women the right to vote, would in fact give all women the franchise. Given what's been discussed today, you probably know the answer, but stay tuned for details. Later in the series, we'll talk about the abolition of many of the voting restrictions discussed today, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, how current voting restrictions echo the ones of the past, and more. When conservative Republicans of today, the spiritual successors of the Southern Democrats of the Jim Crow era, are in such a flurry to pass laws against the teaching of critical race theory in school. It's not really about critical race theory at all. The term critical race theory, or CRT, is being used as a buzzword here. The anti-CRT movement is less about the substance of critical race theory and is more about keeping Americans in the dark and ignorant about the truth of our past, including those events in our history that don't put this country in the best light. The fact that this anti-critical race theory effort is occurring at the same time as laws are being passed in several states restricting voting rights is not a coincidence, and this should not be lost on anyone. This is why history is vital and should not be censored. This is why we don't want to gloss over history to make people feel better about being an American or encourage patriotism, or to keep white Americans from feeling uncomfortable or guilt about the past. History, accurately taught, is illuminating and instructive. If we don't know the past, it's very easy for the past to become the present. Thank you very much for listening to Pastor Podcast. I know you were all waiting longer than expected on this one, and I truly appreciate your patience. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirrerpodcast.com slash download, and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, which is completely free, you'll be able to access new episodes once they come out so you don't fall behind. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And I tweet a lot so follow me on Twitter at PotstirrerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.